Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on two terms that are ubiquitous. We've looked at one of them before. We've probably referred in passing to the other, but I want to look at it in a bit more detail. And I'll come on to those terms in a minute. A couple of notices before then, and then over to all of you, or some of you, with your questions. So yeah, that's the kind of broad structure of our time together. So the notices, uh, yeah, live at the Edinburgh Festival from Sunday, August the 13th, all the way through to the end of the festival, different show every day. I'm getting emails from some of you saying you're coming up great or going down, depending where you are, uh, or flying in. But there's going to be a lot of great delving deep with some uh, laughs uh, there. And before then, just a quick reminder, on July the 11th at the Hitchin Festival that evening, uh, whatever day of the week that is, I've forgotten, a live rock and roll politics show then as well. So if you're around, see you there. That's it really for notices. Uh, now on to something which um, is great. Sometimes, you know, I get you know, such a range of questions and all of them, I read them all and they're all stimulating. I'm sorry if I don't read them out. Uh, but I got one which is kind of going to frame some of my opening thoughts, if that's okay with you. Uh, and it's from Andy maybe, who describes herself as the Western baker, very justifiably, because Andy sent me a photo of some buns, some homemade buns he has baked, with the slight hint that they're available to everybody in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, if we go over there, unless you are able, Andy, to perhaps hire the cooperative's white van man, Andy, too, to drive your buns around. But anyway, well, this is the essence of the thing, and it's really fundamental to what's going to happen in the build-up to the election and the aftermath, whoever's in power, but especially if there is a Labour government. And Andy points out that the media only ever highlights that the overall tax burden in the UK is at an all-time high, without any reference to similar economies in Europe. Why is our political and media class convinced that we can have European levels of welfare and public services with American levels of taxation? And so uh, this is a key fundamental question. It was, by the way, Roy Jenkins who first posed that question or made the assertion that Britain wants uh, US levels of taxation and European levels of public services. And this phrase, tax burden, is so revealing, isn't it? It's the first of two terms that uh, we're going to look at in our time together. Burden. It implies it is something painful that has to be imposed on us, this burden. Anyway, Andy uh, rightly points to a chart that will not feature in the British general election. There will be charts showing the tax burden going up, although he, he has sent me a chart showing that the burden, I'm going to use that word with a certain emphasis, burden. Oh, how 
painful. What an act of sadism from government to ask us to pay taxes. Um, showing that actually that burden is uh, the same roughly as it was in 1970 at about 35%. But the relevant chart, which will not feature in the election at all, is the one comparing it with other countries. Because our politics is so parochial, there are no references to the outside world unless it's um, hostile, that when they pose a threat coming on the boats and those Eastern Europeans used to come here to pick fruit and vegetables, all of that. Anyway, we've sorted all that out and sent them back, but um, not the boats. Sunak, one of his priorities, so-called, the boats. Four others, none of which have been met or show signs of being met. Anyway, back to this. So, the tax burden. Here is the latest chart. Denmark, the percentage is 45.9%. France, 45.3%. Sweden, 44.1%. Greece, 38%. Germany, 37%. Spain, 30... Uh, hold on a second. God, my eyesight's deteriorating. I must get this precisely right because you don't want to hear any of these figures again for a long time uh, unless you too follow these charts. Spain, 33.5%. United Kingdom, 33.2%. The only major countries below the United Kingdom are Canada, Japan, Australia, South Korea, and inevitably the United States. And if you go to the United States, you see the consequence of that low tax burden. Terrible infrastructure, poor public services, a health service where you have to, if you fall ill, start negotiating a sum of money that you're going to pay for treatment, and so on. Um, and uh, so there we are. All the things, you know, the tax burden oh, is higher than ever. And, of course, Labour play the game uh, as much as anyone. The tax burden under the Tories is higher than ever. Keir Starmer gave an interview to The Telegraph the other day. We want to cut taxes because it's uh, this tax burden is so high and so on. But there is a consequence uh, to this parochialism with no reference to other countries, which is that we will not get the public services of Denmark, France, Sweden, Greece, Germany, Spain, who uh, to different degrees have a higher tax burden. Now, two things need to happen, one of which never will. I've spoken many times about the appalling tyranny of the tax and spend debate in the build-up to a general election and where any public spending commitment made is seen as a threat uh, because if it's not fully costed, in inverted commas, which is another game, uh, finding a way of explaining how you're going to transform schools with, a, uh, with ending the charitable status on private education or transforming the NHS with a non-DOM tax. But beyond that, there will be no scope for improvements in public services to a great degree with that pre-election tax and spend debate. And I don't blame the current Labour leadership for playing that game because it's not at all clear that there's a way of elevating it to a grown-up level. 
In other words, when Labour have tried to uh, make spending commitments um, in the 80s, 90s, up until 97, they were slaughtered. And they were largely slaughtered because of these ridiculous tax bombshells and all the rest of it. But there is another thing that needs to happen. The word burden needs to be dropped because no one says, you know, when they think about, I don't know, improving their house or in the case of the editor of The Times, say, perhaps thinking, oh, yeah, I'll improve my second home, you know, or whatever. Um, no one regards that spending as a burden. The raising of the money to do that is not a burden, but a source of great excitement as you anticipate the improvements to your second home, or in some cases, third home or whatever. Um, it's not a burden. It's only in the context of tax where it is described as a burden. It is, if done sensibly, an investment. And that investment takes many forms. Schools, hospitals, GPs, trains running uh, efficiently and on time. Uh, that's a consequence of an investment. But at the moment in the UK, it's a total mess. Uh, as Andy rightly pointed out once he had finished baking his rolls, there is an expectation of high public services. The Labour are going to go into this election condemning the government rightly for running down public services to new levels of squalor. I didn't think they would be able to top the levels of chaos um, that were in place in '97. Uh, actually, you know, the 97 has been reworked. Uh, yes, the economy was growing and that was hugely significant when Labour came in. Uh, the growth was 3%, I think, uh, in 97. But um, public services were dire. However, boy, did it took a long time for them to sort it out. They did sort it out. But they're even worse now. So when you go to Denmark or Sweden, uh, part of the reason why public services are better. It's not the only reason. And the streets are cleaner and public transport seems to connect and work. Part of it is that people are willing to pay more to get that outcome. And so I was really grateful for this reminder that we're about to enter the insane period of tax and spend in the build-up to the next election. Uh, it is, as I say, a game. And um, if Labour doesn't play it, they tend to lose. So I can understand why they're playing it. But there will be consequences. Uh, the more Kisama gives interviews to the Daily Telegraph saying he hopes to cut taxes, the more he will be constrained in office. You can't renege on things you say in the build-up to an election within reason. There is, there is a bit more space in power. And I think Gordon Brown has said to Rachel Reeves, once you've won, you can do things that you can't say before an election. And that is partially true, though not wholly true. So, for example, when New Labour ruled out income tax rises um, for the whole of the first term and then the second term, um, Gordon Brown had to find money through all kinds of other ways, selling gold, and that caused a fuss. Um, the PFI, the, do you remember the Private Finance Initiative, which was a very costly way to build or improve 
hospitals, amongst other things. But given the tax and spend debate, uh, it was the only route available. There were more efficient and fairer ways of raising money through tax, but the tax and spend debate pre the election didn't allow it. Um, and, and But everyone falls into this trap. The left calling for a wealth tax absolutely falls into the trap of tax being a punishment. Oh, wealth tax. The wealthy should be taxed um, uh, almost, as I say, in a punitive way. Um, unless there is a reframing to show that tax leads to benefits directly, um, we're going to continue in the UK to experience this appalling level of public provision. Trains that don't run, uh, half the train carriages not attached to the train uh, and all the seats unreserved, the school buildings in decline, uh, hospitals in decline, a decline, 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 uh, unless you invest. It's not the only thing that has to happen, but it is important. And one of the things that Gordon Brown pledged to do when he finally put up national insurance to pay for improvements in the NHS uh, in the second term was to audit every halfpenny of the money raised. You can see why he was doing that. They were so worried by this tax rise because New Labour had been defined by not putting up taxes. I mean, he, Gordon Brown did, but stealthily. Uh, so he said every halfpenny was going to be audited so people could see where this additional money was being invested and to, to recognise the benefits and also to make sure that the money wasn't going to be wasted. Sadly, that never happened because there was that blazing row between Blair and Brown and their respective entourages about health reform and how you do it and foundation hospitals and accountability and, and so on. Uh, so it didn't happen, but it should. If there's ever a time again when a Labour government feels they have the space to do what is essential in this country, which is to invest in public services and infrastructure, um, that uh, everybody knows where every halfpenny is being spent. And if money is being wasted, they, people doing the wasting of the money should be sacked. Uh, they need to be held to account. None of this hiding behind layers of bureaucracy. But everybody needs to then recognise that the money that they have invested through tax has been well spent. But the other part of the pretense in the pre-election uh, debate, and probably afterwards, is that there is an alternative to this, that by implication, Spain, Denmark, Germany, uh, Sweden are all just stupid in having to put up taxes. There is this more fruitful route called reform. And as you know, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, I have cause every now and again to probe this term reform because it is politically a magic wand. If anyone utters the word reform, the newspapers, the Tory sporting newspapers love it. Oh, yeah, this is a sign at last of grown up politics. And uh, the sort of ultra Blairite wing of the Labour Party, Tony Blair, says, look, you know, just we've got to focus on reform, right? That, that, that's the issue. And as I've had cause to say before, there is not uh, anyone 
in the country who does not accept that reform is necessary. The question is, what form does the reform take? And is it really an alternative to more investment? So the greatest reformer uh, in modern politics in recent decades was Jeremy Corbyn who proposed reforms on a sweeping scale to the NHS, uh, sort of wholesale nationalisation, including of the pharmaceutical companies. Now, that's one hell of a reform. He was a reformer. Uh, but, of course, you know, that, that reform was deemed unacceptable. So what is the acceptable reform? Uh, now, Labour are saying, I heard an interview with Liz Kendall, who was asked about social care. And she said reform will have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, oh, yeah, brilliant. Reform, reform. And I thought I'd read you. One of the papers that is a kind of player in the build-up to the election is The Times. The Labour leadership are obsessed with The Times. Keir Starmer's people briefing The Times on a near-daily basis against shadow cabinet members they don't like and about those who are going to be demoted and all that's all in the times and recently Wes Streeting uh, as shadow health secretary uttered the word reform and the times oh yeah at least this is a sign labor are going to be grown up uh, Wes Streeting has talked about reform and uh, they all mention reform and they get a good review and you know columnists oh wow reform um, so, and you, you don't really have to say much more than the word and certain elements of the media get very excited and in a positive way for Labour to get positive media from the Times is hard to come by because they their editor is a Tory supporting figure and I suspect unless there is a total implosion of the Tory party the Times well I don't think the Times will endorse Labour they might waffle around the issue but they won't endorse Labour anyway the Times had an editorial on Saturday about the NHS it was based on the proposals that uh, Sunak uh, and Steve Barclay his health secretary have announced and as ever in, with the paper it says a viable reform must go deeper. The Times for you, under its previous editor, John Witherow, was always going on about reform. As I say, I doubt if John Witherow, with one of his houses, would say, oh, I think uh, I don't need to spend any more money on this house. I'll reform the way the house is run. But with the NHS, reform. So let's analyse the reforms proposed in the Times editorial. Hospitals are full of people who shouldn't be there. Elderly patients in need of social care and those suffering from chronic conditions who could be treated in the community. Yeah, absolutely. This is a huge problem. The pandemic exposed the scale of the problem when, in order to create capacity in hospitals, uh, quite a few patients were thrown into social care where they died uh, because the pandemic spread like a raging fire. Um, and the government couldn't control it because they weren't fully in control of social care provision. Now, obviously, if you're going to put them out of hospital, as the Times proposes, you will need much greater community care, uh, social care. Is any party proposing this? No. The Labour Party, too scared even to endorse the Fabian report on social care, published recently. I interviewed the uh, General Secretary of the Fabian Society about it. Um, anyway, back to the Times. 
In Britain, public health and community care take second place to hospitals. This is me speaking. The Times is absolutely right. On we go. Britain spends less per capita on health than most of its rich competitors. Now, I thought, ah, this is interesting. Are the Times moving into the realm of reality by acknowledging it, a bit like Andy the baking his buns, uh, comparing Britain's tax burden, so-called, with other countries? No. It then goes on to say the Times, but the bill is still huge, 38% of all public spending. If it carries on in its current trajectory, the NHS will consume a fifth of GDP by the 2060s. This is unsustainable. Healthcare must increasingly be about preventing illness, not treating it. Yes, absolutely. How? Well, that isn't really addressed uh, in <laughs> this uh, focus on reform, nor is the fact that the growing elderly population will continue, if anything, to make greater demand, even with the impact of preventative measures. So you kind of get this kind of sub-O-level essay where you say, oh, yeah, uh, Britain spends much less than other countries, but it's still far too much. Then... On it goes. If Labour's West Streeting inherits the mantle of Health Secretary, he'll need a strong dose of realism. Ah, what does that mean? So, on we go. Basic charges for GP appointments and A&E visits for those who can afford them may be necessary. I like that, may be necessary. Uh, now, as you know, uh, if you're a regular listener of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, uh, we've had a big debate ourselves about this. And I am in favour of co-payments. A big majority of you, judging by emails, are against. And you have raised very big practical objections to this, um, such as the cut-off point of those who could be charged would still be at quite a high level and the cost of administering the rest of it of those who do pay uh, raises hardly anything and, and many other factors. Uh, does the Times in its call for reform and realism explore how you do this? No, on it goes. And a reform social care system could involve contributions from those who can afford it. Could. Interesting. Now, imagine if Labour went into the election, as it should in an ideal world, making it absolutely clear that it was going to set up a proper modern social care system like most other equivalent countries has. And it will be paid for partly by a tax, in other words, contributions from those who could afford it, all hell would break loose, including from the Times newspaper, who would say, we thought Keir Starmer uh, was going to change the Labour Party, and here it comes with its tax bombshells. On it goes. The Labour Party, traditionally more trusted on the NHS, may be better place to deliver this medicine. The NHS is not a religion, but a service with the capacity for improvement. Restoring it to health requires open minds. End of leader. Um, well, you know, the, the problems for any politician in reflecting on that leader is this how 
question. Not only how do you do it politically, how do you make the case politically, when you will be slaughtered by the very papers saying there needs to be an open mind about how you raise the money, but also the practicalities. As I said, we have spent many weeks on this podcast reflecting on how co-payments might be effective. And we had emails from across the world, some putting the case for co-payments based on the system like in Belgium and France and so on, but others doing other things. And it's so complicated. But Labour need to keep the door open in what they say before the election. And say if they followed through the implications of some of these vaguely defined reforms in the Times, the Times would be one of those crucifying it. But they need to have language that gives them space in government to work out how the heck they are going to pay for social care and raise the levels within the NHS. And it will partly be, as the Times implies, without following through the implication, an issue of resources. And I think, again, of that tax table of other countries, Denmark, France, Sweden, Greece, Germany, Spain. Uh, But here it is across the political spectrum, a terrible, intimidating tax burden uh, with promises vaguely of lower taxes. Uh, Yeah, what a kind of crazy mess. What we've kind of reflected on so far in our time together is the madness we're about to enter uh, in the pre-election period, Uh, a a kind of completely unrealistic tax and spend debate uh, with a focus on reform. And, you know, I I can see why Labour does it, you know, oh, you know, it's, it's time to be grown up about this. It's not about money. It's about reform. Oh, columnist, brilliant, fantastic. Times editorial, oh, yeah. Um, And on we go. Anyway, terms, political terms, define the way we end up seeing politics. It's not about our lives. We end up in our lives struggling with these useless public services. But then we look outside to the electoral arena and it's a tax burden. And there is this thing called reform that sorts it all out without having to raise any more money. Uh, And that's the arena we'll be in for quite some time as we struggle to see a GP, get a train, an affordable ticket that actually runs and all the other things. Okay, uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, that original question that triggered those thoughts. Uh, Andy, maybe the Western Baker. And now it's time to go over to you with some other questions. And the email address, for those of you who want to join in our never-ending debate, is steverick14 at icloud.com. steverick14 at icloud.com. Got quite a few emails about a kind of mini explosion that erupted the other day in the Labour Party when uh, The Guardian published a piece by Neil Lawson, who runs the this pressure group called Compass, uh, which kind of advocates, amongst other things, a kind of support for a progressive coalition combined with electoral reform, a passion I know of some listeners to this uh, podcast. 
And Neil Lawson wrote that he was on the verge of being expelled from the Labour Party because of some tweet from two years ago where he had uh, apparently advocated tactical voting involving support for the Greens or something in some local election. Um, and I have to say, Neil Lawson, I first met Neil Lawson, and by the way, you can, I interviewed him for this podcast a few months ago, so you can find it. Uh, but I first met him during the 1997 election when he was a passionate New Labour supporter. Now, he became quite disillusioned, which is why he is hated by some who are still fighting those wars of that period um, and who clearly targeted him and thought, right, we'll get rid of him. We're getting rid of all these others. Let's go towards the so-called soft left and kill him off. Um, but it was quite interesting uh, when he put this piece out, instead of loads of people cheering, oh, this is Labour, realistic and so on, I don't think the kind of militants who are doing this realise how they are perceived uh, as they go about killing off people. Um, but a lot of people started tweeting, including me, this is, this is getting out of hand. And a Labour government in particular will need reservoirs of goodwill uh, as it takes tough decisions uh, if it gets into power and alienating all kinds of people with this kind of machismo uh, was totally counterproductive. Anyway, uh, differing views from you in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Rob Watson supported the view, uh, the, the move uh, to expel Neil Lawson. By the way, I don't think he will be expelled now. But anyway, Rob says, my view is, um, and I mean this with a large dose of contempt for the various cliques around Labour, but if people like Neil Lawson want to campaign for tactical voting, then that's perfectly fine, but he can't do it from inside the Labour Party. The next election is going to be fought in the mud and Labour will need every vote it can get. Starmer needs to go after every vote, including Tory voters from the past. So that's his view. By the, and he says, like you, my calmness is an act, uh, though perhaps not today. No, you don't sound calm today, Rob. I'm not calm either. It's an act. Uh, but you don't even sound calm with your um, kind of passion over this uh, particular theme. The problem is, Rob, you see... Because Neil Lawson was caught with a tweet uh, advocating tactical voting, I think it's been misread as an attack on tactical voting. I just think, I might be wrong, I just think uh, the people with the, this power, and I don't think Keir Starmer knew it was going on, just thought, right, who do we get next? Right, Neil Lawson, he's been critical. He's a pain as far as we're concerned. Let's kill him. Go back over his tweets and let's find a tweet that can we can get him with. That is what I assume happened anyway. Uh, and, and Neil Lawson cleverly did this preemptive strike before the axe finally fell. So meanwhile, uh, th uh, Rob, that's your view, that it was necessary. Uh, but uh, say we're, we, we are a broad church in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative and none of you get expelled. This is the way politics should be done. So, uh, John, last name <laughs> withheld because I want to try to avoid being purged, uh, who writes in Aberdeen. Oh, he says, thank you for the brilliant podcast. Thank you, John. And I look forward to seeing you in Edinburgh, having already booked tickets for two shows. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, see, see, see you there. And it's a, it's a different show every day. 
Anyway, John writes, as a member of the Labour Party for many years, I'm unsurprised by the actions of the ruling faction in expelling Neil Lawson from the party. The right wing within the Labour Party are a toxic grouping of the most petty, nasty and dishonest people I've ever encountered in my lifetime. I can see why you haven't left your full name. Uh, John. This was on full display during the Corbyn era and has been on in full display under the leadership of Keir Starmer. It was totally predictable that they would head on and move towards the so-called soft left in their targeting. So yeah, I don't think the people now who are doing this with a kind of arrogant swagger, oh yeah, let's kill off Lawson, let's do this, let's, this elected mayor, we don't like him, let's kill him off. Um, I, I don't think they have thought through how it is perceived, let alone whether they are right to be doing all of this especially when everybody really should be looking outwards towards the next election. Um, and if they are, well, I, I wonder whether they're going to be a bit more wary after what's happened with this Lawson thing. And you don't have to be a defender of what Neil Lawson believes. And if you listen to the um, interview, it's, uh, it, it's quite hard to fully pin down where he stands on some things. But he does believe in this so-called alliance with Greens and Lib Dems in order to kind of have a sustained period of progressive government and he believes in electoral reform uh, but yeah kind of to hate someone for this that there's a sort of factionalism in Labour which renders it dysfunctional. Uh, David Stanley's of the same view he's left his surname David he could be expelled. He thought the interview with Neil Lawson on the podcast was uh, interesting. And uh, he says he now faces expulsion from Labour for an innocuous tweet praising Lib Dem and Green cooperation in a local election in Oxford in 2021. Two years later, this has been used as a reason to expel him after 44 years membership of the party. This is simply the latest attempt to silence any independent voices by a ruthless faction who have seized control of the party machinery. Blair New Labour never went this far and remained reasonably tolerant of dissenting views. Uh, loving the podcast every week and now listening when gardening. So a new skill for the collective. Yep, uh, we could very much do with your help on the gardening front, David. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, there is a sort of misreading of Blair and New Labour. Blair uh, rarely went after individuals either. He did it once when he stopped Ken Livingstone being the Labour candidate for London when the mayor of London first came up and uh, regretted it and apologised for doing it and, uh, of course, allowed Livingstone to become the Labour Mayor of London. Uh, Livingston won it as an independent. But apart from that, of course, Corbyn was there on the back benches. Uh, the soft left, he kind of cultivated. If you read Chris Mullins' diaries, the former Labour MP, um, he, he was representative of the back benches at one point. And they used to see Blair every week. And Chris Mullins used to be a disciple of Tony Benn. There was an attempt to engage, um, or the, uh, but it's become mythologised that... Um, you know, the only way to sort things out is to be seen to be, in inverted commas, taking on large elements of the Labour Party. And, um, well, you know, uh, 
there's a debate, isn't there, about what is... I think it makes it just everyone in that party look weird and disturbed and kind of hating each other. You know, 20 points ahead in the polls. It's all bonkers. But anyway, um, so we're debating it from our gardens, doing our gardening, uh, but we debate it in a mood of uh, tolerance because, as I say, we've had both points of view. Okay, thank you very much. Angela Walker notes Lee Rowley to go over to the Tory side. Our man to watch on our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative um, has been at it again. Steve Mansell has also noted it. Lee Rowley uh, are now rising up the ranks of the Tory party. Uh, Angela writes, the man is destined for greatness. He orders South Cambridgeshire to stop its four-day week working despite independently assessed evidence of its success, not to mention the evidence from the private sector and international experience on four-day week working. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, 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 I'm trying to follow Lee Rowley. I hadn't noticed he had intervened on this front. In his, He's now a minister, isn't he? Uh, you know, doing ministerial interventions in a mighty way and ignoring all uh, independent evidence, which is a pattern, of course, which we're now familiar with. But um, I'd like to know more about it as well, Angela. The four-day, what is the independent evidence that it is more productive? Because um, I'm obsessed with productivity. I know we've had a debate about whether growth is a good thing or not on this podcast. But um, yeah, tell me more about the four-day week, why it's been a success and why old Rowley while soaring to the top of the Tory party, has blocked it. Uh, thank you. And as I say, Steve Mansell as well raised it. Over to France. Now, Dominique Ajoul, our French correspondent. Yeah, it's interesting. She's mentioned something that I didn't know about. But Dominique, I want to know more about your take on what's happening in France at the moment. Um, because, uh, yeah, it's... Well, by the time this podcast comes out, it might have all subsided. Uh, it was beginning to subside, as I record, but what days of drama in France. But anyway, Dominica mentioned nothing which I hadn't noticed, which is interesting. Last Tuesday, the EU signed a 15 billion euro free trade deal with New Zealand, which includes the protection of almost 2,000 EU wines and spirits, as well as the protection of 163 of traditional EU products, various cheeses, olives, etc. EU farmers are largely happy with the deal. I tried very hard to find reports of this in the UK media, but without success. Yeah, it was... Um, uh, God, yeah, the, the deal Britain's done with New Zealand is just a fascinating light uh, that shines on the Johnson era. It's been disowned, amongst others, of course, by the British farmers because they've been treat that they they do really badly out of the deal. But it's been disowned by the former Agriculture Secretary George Eustace in the House of Commons. It was a combination of trust and. Johnson, who didn't really know what he was doing, negotiating the British deal. And here is the EU one. And it's so interesting because the other deals Britain has done has been largely off the back of EU deals. Um, so I hadn't noticed that that had happened. 
And, uh, yeah, <laughs> do you remember with Brexit we were going to get this deal with the, uh, the United States? It's further away than ever. Uh, in crazy times. Dominique, give us your take on what happened in France with the rioting and so on, um, because uh, I know you think it's been misreported or some of the causes and significance have been misreported in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going over to uh, uh, France for a couple of days for somebody's birthday. See, I, I take risks for the rock and roll politics cooperative so I can report along with Dominica um, whilst I'm drinking wine at a birthday gathering in Provence over a weekend. Uh, if, 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 if we're allowed to go, yeah, the risks I take for journalism. Anyway, look, that's just about it for now. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, some of you write saying, say, you've got to do more about climate change. Why are you not doing more on climate change? Uh, and the interview towards the end of this week uh, will be on this theme. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an interesting way into it as well. But more... When you, if you subscribe, you just get it automatically. So subscribe and you'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, but that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do leave a review if you like it. If you don't like it, please don't leave a review. And um, let's get together very soon. Keep the ideas and emails uh, coming forward. Sorry if I haven't read them out, uh, but there will be more space very soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.